Good morning, the Hills. I'm happy to be here at home, away from home. Uh, at, once again, the band just did an amazing job. Give it up for the band again. As, <clears throat> I just, uh, I just wanted them to keep playing forever. I was. Uh, I don't want to preach anymore, so is that okay with you guys? No. Uh, happy to be here. I uh, have known the Ragsdales and uh, the Larsons for a very long time. Uh, grew up one town over from uh, John. I mean, he was a little older than me, but it's like a big brother uh, growing up. And then Brian was my very first youth pastor, which gives you an idea that Brian is much older than he looks. And, <laughs> and he looks kind of old, so. Uh, no, I'm just playing. Um, <laughs> I've known Brian and Ashley and... Uh, and uh, Brian's mom, Patsy's here today, and go, our, fa- our family goes way, way back with their family. So it's always more fun to worship with family, isn't it? And so uh, happy to be here with you all. Uh, as he mentioned, I am the director of Destiny Leadership Institute. Now, uh, we had this crazy idea. You ever just have this epiphany that just comes out of nowhere? I, I had an epiphany a few years ago that church leaders should be trained. <laughs> and uh, that if you serve and work in a local church, that, that there should be a way for you to be equipped. A lot of the traditional models, though, are pretty expensive and require a lot of sacrifice that uh, you have to move away and go to school or you have to pay a lot of money. Uh, I've done the formal training route. I have a couple master's degrees from Oral Roberts University. Uh, I have my, uh, I'm working on my Ph.D. from Midwestern Baptist. I tell people sometimes that because I went to a, a Pentecostal charismatic master's and a Baptist Ph.D., I'll probably come out Methodist. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's just like mixing stuff. I think that's what happens. I don't know. We'll... It remains to be seen. Uh, but I've done the formal route, believe in it, you know, give my life to it, but also know that it can be very expensive uh, and that it can require a lot of sacrifice and commitment. So what we've done is we've taken our program and put it all online. In a two-year, over a two-year process, you will uh, learn the basics of Bible, theology, practical ministry. Uh, you'll learn all that online from us, all while serving in your local church, serving one of the best churches in America as well. Because we don't think that information is the point. Like you, you, do, you get informed that you can serve others. And so you're getting the information from us, and then you're immediately applying it and serving in your local church, which makes me really excited. And uh, so I would love to talk to you more about that. We have several students already here. Uh, Tim Wilson and uh, Jordan Hicks will be graduating this summer. Uh, excited for them. And then uh, Kizzy, uh, Kizzy Kimmins, I don't see Kizzy right now. Kizzy's enrolled, but she's not, uh, uh, not ready to graduate. She'll do that next year. So we're just excited. I think Judy is going to get back in and graduate next year as well. So we're excited for them. And I, like I told them during the first service that uh, I will reward bonus points for tweeting, Facebooking, or Instagramming how good my message is. <laughs> so... You do get rewarded for that. Uh, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. But if you want to, my handle is at Landon Galloway on uh, Twitter, just Landon Galloway on Facebook, and at Landon Galloway 3 on Instagram. So there's two others that took my name first, so I'm the third one. But no, just kidding. Uh, happy to be here. Wish my wife could be here. She normally accompanies me. But we have a 10-week-old uh, as well as a 15-month-old. So last night was the first night that I've slept in 10 weeks, and it was incredible. <laughs> Just amazing. Almost didn't come to church today. I had to remind myself that's why I traveled here. It's just like I thought the whole point was just a night alone in a hotel room. It was like it's it was it was heavenly. Um, but I wish she could be here uh, with us. But she's uh, she's not. If you met my wife, remember from last time she is from the Caribbean. She's from the island of Trinidad, uh, which is just absolutely fantastic. 
Uh, when we go visit my family, we go to Amory, Mississippi. <laughs> we go visit her family. We get to go to the Caribbean. So, oh, well, it's a good place to have in-laws. Come on, somebody. <laughs> so, I love the ocean. I love the beach. I love the pool. I don't, I've never had a bad day at the pool in my entire life or on the ocean. Even last week, we were at the beach. And my 15-month-old was being fussy, so I jumped in the pool with her to keep her entertained. And about three minutes in the pool, I reached back and I was like, oh, no, my phone is in my back pocket. And I had these, these feelings, and I don't know how to describe them. But on one hand, the baby was being quiet, and so I was so happy. I just didn't care about the phone. <laughs> but then I lost my, my phone. And with, even with all that being said, I was at the pool, I was at the beach, I'm a happy guy. I don't care about my phone at the time, I'll, I'll replace it, I can get another phone. I can't get another day back at the beach because I live in North Mississippi. <laughs> Where it's been spring and summer all year until I got back and then it turned winter. So I was just happy to be on the beach and let things happen. I've never had a bad day at the beach, never had a bad day at the pool. But today we're going to look at John chapter 5 and there's this man who's been laying beside the pool, Bethesda, He's been in his condition for 38 years. So theoretically, he's had 38 years worth of bad days at the pool. I can't look back at a single bad day at the pool. If I'm at the pool, it's a good day. I don't care what's going on around me. But this man has 38 years worth of bad days. All right, let's read the first few verses together. Afterwards... Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time and asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. And Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath, so the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law does not allow you to carry that sleeping mat. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you, uh, even as I was reading the text, I began to feel excited about what you're going to speak through your word to us today, God. What's so powerful are not the words that come out of my mouth, but the words that come from your book and that we're going to open this book together, we're going to dive in, we're going to dig, and we're going to see what you said to that man and how it applies to us today. We love you, we bless you, we honor you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So, Jesus is on his way to a festival for the Jews. We don't know if it's Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles. We don't know what, what feast it was, but he was headed to the feast. And on his way there, he goes through this area called Bethesda, the city. And at Bethesda, there is a pool with lots and lots of sick people around the pool. Now, what I love about this first moment is the realization that Jesus goes where sick people are. 
because there are other ways to get to the temple other than through Bethesda. Matter of fact, most of the religious devout people would have avoided Bethesda and entered the temple a different way because, I mean, you're going to church. It's God's house. The music's going to be good. The sermon's going to be good. Everyone's going to be looking nice. We've been looking forward to this vessel for a long time. Why would we want to ruin that experience by seeing a bunch of sick folks? But Jesus didn't have that mentality. He always went where the sick people were. Let me tell you, if you don't know where to go next or how to walk out God's call in your life or what he's called you to do, it's pretty simple. Just go where hurting people are and help them. You're never more like Jesus than you are in that moment wherever you go where sick people are and bring them help and hope and healing. So he goes there, and apparently all these sick people are gathered around the pool because there is a, a uh, legend. We don't completely understand what's going on here. The text isn't completely clear. But something happens. The water bubbles up. And whenever the water bubbles up, the first person or the first several people to get into the pool get a miracle. Uh, I don't know what it looks like, but in my mind, because I'm not the most sophisticated thinker in the world, I imagine it's like the the jets on a jacuzzi coming on and start to bubble up. That's how I imagine what's happening here at the pool. The jacuzzi jets come on. The first person in the pool after the jacuzzi jets come on finds healing. And so it's a desperate place because you can imagine everyone around that pool They are waiting for something that they have no control over and that they're hoping that one day at the right moment, the situation will be right, the circumstances will be right, and that they will be able to get into the water. And once they get into the water, their life will will be changed forever. Many of us live our lives by the pool of Bethesda, (laughs) just waiting on the right moment, (laughs) just waiting on the right time. Well, one day something good is going to happen to me. One day that situation is going to resolve itself. One day, and I'm just going to sit and wait, put my life on pause, and wait for something to happen so that my life will be better. And sitting there for all this time. And Jesus, looking at the crowd, he singles out. And there's been some conversations on why Jesus did not heal everyone at the pool, but he did heal someone. I can't answer that because I'm something that's probably not within the parameters of what I can and cannot know. But I will say this, that Jesus shows us that even whenever you don't help everyone, you can help someone. (laughs) Because whenever we look at our world today, like there are a lot of brokenness, a lot of dysfunction, a a lot of hurting people, broken people, sick and twisted situations that need help. And that's just in my family. (laughs) Then we take it one step further, come on somebody, and look at the world. Like There are lots of people that need help. There are lots of people that need some hope. And and it's easy to feel like, well, I can't help everybody. I, I can't do that. I can't change the world. But what if God did not ask you to change the world, but he asked you to change your world? Because you can't help someone. You can't help everyone, but you can help someone. Jesus did not look at the crowd and say, look, this is just too much. I, can't, I, don't, I don't have time. I can't handle this right now. He did find someone that needed him and fixed his attention on him. I'm afraid sometimes, especially as young leaders, we get so fixated on trying to change the whole world, to trying to solve these big problems that, that can't have a, they don't have an immediate solution, and we forget that we can help change individual people and individual things that are right in front of us. So he looks at this man, 
And the text says that Jesus looks at him and he knows that he has been ill for 38 years. Isn't that amazing that Jesus knows you that well? That anyone could have looked at the man and knew that he was ill. Anyone could have looked at the man and, and guessed that he was a paralytic and he was unable to walk. But Jesus looked at the man and did not only know his situation, but knew how long he had been in that situation. Someone needs to hear this morning that God doesn't just know where you are. He knows how long you've been there. <laughs> that God doesn't just know what's going on. He knows all about it. The psalmist said, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I get up and you know when I lay down. There's not a single thought in my head that you do not know that I have thought. You know me better than I know myself. That Jesus, if he was in this room this morning, and he is through his Holy Spirit, he walks around and he says, not only do I know you, I know everything about you. I know how long it's been happening. I know how you feel. I know the pain. I know the consequences. And I'm here to do something about it this morning. So he looks at the man and knows that he's been there for 38 years. Now, being physically disabled is a challenge enough physically. But in the first century, uh, it was very uh, common to make fun of, to laugh at the expense of people that were handicapped, that they were considered that there was something wrong with them. They had this really twisted idea that if, if you were physically disabled, then it must have represented something that you've, that you've done, like a punishment for sin, or that it, it, it reveals that you have a character flaw as well that connected the, the emotional and mental state with the physical being. And so the basic idea is that if you are physically disabled, then there must be something about you that makes you deserve this feeling. And that idea needs to stay back in the first century where it originated, <laughs> because it doesn't belong here. In the Corinth, the ancient city, there's a, a record of, of a, a festival that everyone would come and watch a play. And during the play, they would invite up lame people to dance during the play. And the able-bodied dancers would come behind them and kick their legs out from under them and fall. And they'd fall, and the whole crowd would roar with laughter. Uh, Plutarch, who was an ancient writer, he said that an insensitive master of drinking... Uh, so this is an actual thing back then. I don't know if it was a paid position or what. <laughs> but, but like if you were having a party, like the, the host of the party was the master of drinking games. He was the master of ceremonies. The first century was very uh, lavish and, and licentious, and they loved to party. They loved to, that was a big part of their, their culture. And so they'd have these big parties, and there'd be a master of drinking. And after everyone had plenty to drink, the master of drinking would get up. And, he, and Plutarch tells us that if he was very insensitive... He would find a stammerer, someone who couldn't uh, speak well, and ask them to sing a popular tune. Plutarch also tells us that the next thing the master drinking would do in order to make his crowd laugh was that he would invite up a bald man and invite him to comb his hair. Say, I'm not going to look around, just, I'm not looking at anybody. The third thing he would do is he would invite a lame person and invite him to dance on greased wineskins. So what I want you to see with this man by the pool is just, just the physical disability for that length of time was crushing and disheartening. But now imagine that social aspect being added to it. Imagine that every time that this guy was invited to a party, he was, it, it was so that people could laugh at him, that they could make jokes at his expense. 
So we meet a man who is not just physically crushed, but he is spiritually crushed and socially crushed. And from a religious perspective, it was a very common religious belief that, that your physical disability is related to the sins that you've committed. So there's this idea that if you are physically disabled, then you did something to deserve it. So there's this man who's not only physically crushed, he's, he's spiritually crushed, he's socially crushed, and he's sitting there by the pool and had been there for 38 years, which is longer than most people lived in the first century. He had been there essentially a, a lifetime, waiting for his miracle, waiting for his time. And Jesus finds him, walks up to him, looks him in the eye, and says, Do you want to be healed? Do you, want to be, do you want to be made better? Do you want to be made whole? And at first glance, this is really a difficult question. No, Jesus, I'm really enjoying this. Next month, we'll have my 39th anniversary by the poolside. All my friends are coming. Got invited to a party next week where they're going to kick my legs out from under me and they laugh. Yeah, this is having the time of my life, Jesus. No, no, I'm good. At first, it seems like a ridiculous question. Of like, Why wouldn't anyone want to be healed? But Jesus understands us better than we understand ourselves sometimes. And what Jesus understands is that if you've been sick long enough, if you've been disabled long enough, if you've been in a dysfunctional situation long enough, you forget how to live any other way. You forget what it's like to hope for a better future. You don't have faith. You don't have hope. You don't have joy. You don't have anything because you, don't ima- you cannot even begin to imagine how differently your life would look if your situation changed because you're so accustomed to the situation that you're living in. So the question that Jesus asked is, is to stir up the man. This man had every reason not to believe that he could be healed. He had every reason to say, no, this is just my lot in life. I mean, after all, think about it. He's laying by the pool. The first person to get to the pool gets healed, the first several people. But he can't walk. The system is absolutely rigged against him. If you're blind, for example, someone can hold your hand and usher you into the water and you can get there. If you're deaf, you still see the water stirring. You take off running, you can get there. If your arms aren't working, someone can, can still guide you. Your legs are fine. You can get there. How will a lame man ever get to the water to be healed? Because it, revol- it involves a physical act of getting up. And the system was rigged against him. And that's what he told Jesus. He said, Jesus, don't you understand? Like, I'm at a perpetual disadvantage here. There's no way that someone like me can get help like that. I am more disadvantaged than anyone else. I can't get there. And furthermore, not only can I not get there in my own strength, but I have no one who cares enough for me to sit beside me to help me get to the water on time. Jesus, of course I would like to be healed. Of course I would like it. But it just isn't going to happen for a guy like me. And one reason why I wrote this sermon is because I got tired of hearing preachers pick on this poor guy. Because I've heard sermons before, like, you know, he just didn't have faith that Jesus could heal him. And, and he didn't have faith. And, and according to some preachers and some books that I've read, it's like Jesus would have looked at him and said, oh, you don't have any faith. And I guess I'm going to move on to the next one. <laughs> yeah. 
make a few positive proclamations in the meantime and just speak some life into your, into your situation. And then, and then we'll see next time if you have enough faith to warrant your miracle. But what if God moves even whenever our faith doesn't? <laughs> what if God works when our faith doesn't work? So he looked at the man who has been, who the system has been rigged against him entirely. And our world still works like this today. That the people who need the most help have the hardest time actually getting it. Like if your marriage isn't that bad, you read a book and do some five love language stuff and you're okay. (laughs) If your kids aren't that rebellious, you take some parenting tips and strategies and get them back on the right track. If your financial situation isn't too dire, then, then there's a way to budget better. And get, but, but what about the people who are so bad off that they can never help themselves? That they need more than a good speech. They need more than a good book. They need more than some good advice. Their life needs the help of Jesus. He says, look, I am too sick to be healed. Everyone else has a chance, not me. My situation is too desperate. I can't do it, Jesus. I can't do it. And Jesus looked at him and said, so what what you're telling me then is that you can't get to the water because your situation is different than everyone else's situation. That your brokenness is more severe than everyone else's brokenness. That you have a special situation that prevents you from obtaining a miracle. You cannot get to the water. Is that correct? The man said, yes, sir, that's correct. I would love to be, but I just can't. I just, it's not, I can't do it. And Jesus said, "So, so if you can't get to the water... Then what if the living water gets to you? <laughs> like, if you can't go to where the miracle is... Then what if the miracle comes to where you are? That if you can't get to the healing, what if the healer comes to where you are? That if you can't improve your life by your own effort, by your own strength, if you can't crawl and you can't roll and you can't drag and you can't claw your way to a better life, then what if Jesus himself comes to where you are and and everything changes now? You don't have to get to the water because the water can get to you. You don't have to get to a miracle because a miracle can come to where you are. See, this is the gospel in a nutshell. Book of Ephesians, Paul says, And you were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How depressing. Paul, how do you really feel? But then he continues, but God, being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that he made us alive with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Therefore, remember You Gentiles in the flesh, the people who are far away from God, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that you had no hope and you were without God in the world and you were strangers to the covenant and and you were cut off from everyone. But remember that now through Christ Jesus, you have been made near by the blood of Christ. 
Not because of anything that you've done, not because you could get to Jesus, but because Jesus through the cross came to where you are. Yes, that man with his own effort, doing it on his own, in his own strength, that man would have been by the pool for another 38 years. Guys like him don't get miracles. Maybe you feel like that this morning. People like me, we don't get help. Addicts like me, like we just, we're just, it's too far gone for us. My family history. People like me, we just don't get the help like other people. Things don't like, things don't work out like that for people like me. And you are absolutely correct (laughs) that if it was up to you to fix your situation and to solve your problems, you'd be waiting another lifetime. You are absolutely correct that there's nothing in your own power to fix the situations that you face. Let me give you a little secret. That if you could have fixed it in good Mississippi English, you'd have done it by now. (laughs) If the problem could have been solved, you would have solved it by now. If all it took was a little hard work and a little willpower, you probably could have found a solution by now. But the gospel is that those of us who are so sick, that need a miracle so desperately, that our lives are so broken that we cannot Imagine even getting to the pool ourselves that the water will come to us in the form of Jesus. Growing up, I heard it said that that the Lord will help those who help themselves. And I believe that. This sounds like good, you know, Puritan work ethic, good American, you know, just pull your pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, and help God out a little bit now. But the more I fell in love with Jesus and the more I fell in love with the gospel, I realized that the actual story is not that God helps those who help themselves. It's that God helps those who cannot help themselves. <laughs> that those of us who are just beyond help and beyond hope. One secret I've learned about God is that sometimes whenever we think we can do it on our own, he will let us. <laughs> but when we're helpless and hopeless, he comes to us. And it's not based on faith alone. The man had no faith. It was based on desperation. As I mentioned, I have a 10-week-old. Whenever she was born, uh, 12 days later, she was admitted to the hospital with a a respiratory virus. Uh, She was sick for a day or two, and they said, this is getting worse. And so they put her on a ventilator, um, 12 days old, and you see she's got tubes and hooks and everything's all running through her little body, uh, keeping her asleep, feeding her through an IV. And the doctor said, listen, it's, uh, there's nothing that we can really do. Uh, it's going to get better, but it's going to get worse first. The, the virus has to run its course. And her being this young, it's, there's nothing we can do. Just hope for the best with his words. That Hope that she can survive the worst part of it. And um, so she kept getting worse and worse. We were watching her numbers on the screen, and she was keeping all the carbon dioxide, which is poison. She's keeping it all in. She wasn't getting enough, enough oxygen in. And, and she's slowly poisoning herself, and, and she's just not getting better. And the doctors came in, and he said, look, the numbers are really scary to me right now, and I don't, she can't sustain this much longer. Her little body can't take, she's poisoning herself. She can't do this much longer. So we need to try to put another cord and, and get inside of an artery so I can get a better feel of if the numbers are as bad as we think they are, then we've got to start talking about some drastic next steps. 
And he said, so I've got to get in there, and I, I need to put like a, a main tube into her throat, and that way we can give her uh, more direct help and all this. And so we said, okay, and can we pray with her first? And so my wife and I, we sat in the room, we prayed. And just prayed for God's guidance and direction. And so we left the room, and the doctor came out a couple hours later, and he said, well, I have good news and bad news. Which one do you want? Uh, ever the pessimist, I said, well, give me the bad news first. He said, well, the bad news is that her arteries are so small, we just can't even get in there. Like we can't even get, uh, can't even get a needle to, to even begin to get access to what we need to get access to. So I wasn't able to do any of the things I told you I was going to do. I said, well, what's the good news? He said, for some reason, her numbers have turned around and she's doing good. <laughs> he, said, and this, he said, it should be opposite because when we're poking her and putting needles in her and tubes... She should have responded in a very negative way, and her numbers should have gotten worse, but she kept getting better and better and better. And so he says, so we'll give her another couple of days, and maybe we can get her off the ventilator. The next day, she was off the ventilator. And before they put her off the ventilator, they said, now, be prepared. You're going to have to stay in here another week or so because she's forgotten how to eat by now. And so we're going to have to keep feeding her through an IV because she won't remember because the ventilator's been shoved down her throat. She won't know how to take a bottle or anything. So we'll have to keep her for a while and keep feeding her and teach her how to eat again. Little girl took a bottle the moment the ventilator came out. And in fact, if you see her, she's a little chubby thing. She's not stopped. <laughs> like she's literally had a bottle in her mouth since that moment. But looking back at that moment, at that event, I just don't know how much faith we had to make it better. <laughs> I was spiritually, physically, and mentally exhausted. Like, I couldn't, I, I, I'm not so sure that whenever I prayed, I wasn't praying this big, oh God, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we know that you move the mountains. Like, I don't think that was the prayer that I was able to pray. I'm not saying I didn't have faith. I'm saying I was too tired to know if I had faith or not. <laughs> too frustrated to know if it was a, if it, but I do know this, that God's miracle, that his work is not contingent on how much faith I can muster up. And it's going to blow some of your minds because many of us were taught to have faith in faith. <laughs> Come on, somebody. We were taught that, that we have to have faith in our faith. <laughs> and if, if we have enough faith in our faith, then God will have to do what we ask him to do. But this story shows us that God does not respond to faith alone. Sometimes he responds to desperation and sometimes he responds to compassion. That faith is just one part of the equation that moves the heart of God. This man was desperate. And I believe that the key ingredient to a miracle, a life-changing miracle, is not always the amount of ability to believe that you can muster up. Sometimes it's you acknowledging how desperate you truly are. Because what if the man would have said, you know what, Jesus? Thank you for your offer. But I've been, I've been practicing my, my crawl and roll technique or whatever it is. And I think that next time the water stirs, I think I've got this. I really don't think I need your help anymore. Because that's, that's my reaction whenever God wants to work in my life. <laughs> Thank you for that, but I think I've got this figured out on my own, God. Thank you for your offer, but I think if you'll just give me a little more time, I can sort this out on my own. The key ingredient to the man's miracle was not his faith, as we see, he didn't apparently have much, but it was the fact that he was in such a desperate situation that only God could intervene. I believe with all my heart that Jesus walked around that pool that day 
finding and searching for the most difficult situation to remedy. That guy over there, he looks like he can make it. He's got it together. He'll get to the pool on his own. Who's the most helpless? Who's the most hopeless? Who's the most desperate? Because that's the life that I want to work in. Then after he gets up, Jesus tells him, he says, take up your bed and walk. Now let me ask you this as I begin to wrap up here this morning. Why would the man need to take up his bed? He will never need that bed again. He has been on that bed for 38 years. I'm sure he is sick of the sight of that bed. And I'm certain that he was sick of the scent of that bed. Dude's been sweating on that bed for 38 years. It has to smell terrible by now. Why would he want to carry that around? And one thing that I've learned in life is that sometimes God leaves us with reminders of our past so people will ask us what happened. (laughs) That God warned him to carry that bed around because then people would say, hey, you're carrying a bed around. Why why are you carrying that around? And it will lead to some conversations. There are some things in my past, and the Lord knows there are some people in my past that I wish I could pretend like never existed. (laughs) But they're still there as a reminder of what God has done in me and through my life. So he's carrying the matter around. And sure enough, it becomes an opportunity. Because someone asked him, they said, the Pharisee comes. And the Pharisees have these very strict rules. Uh, many of them did on, on, on what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath day. Uh, I was in Israel not too long ago. And um, you're actually not allowed to push a button on an elevator. Uh, because that is constitutes work. Because the electrical energy to raise the elevator is work, and so you're not allowed to do that because you'd be working. Uh, so they actually have what they call the Sabbath elevator, the Shabbat elevator, that stops on every floor automatically. <laughs> so on the Sabbath, you have to use that elevator. That way you don't do the work of pushing the button. And so uh, that's a long, complicated history, but let me just suffice it to say that they had very particular rules on what you could and could not do on the day of rest, on the Sabbath. And one of them was you couldn't carry anything heavy. That was against the rules. So they looked at him, and they said, why are you carrying your bed? Who told you to take up your mat? Isn't that the most insane question that you've ever, asked, you've ever heard? Because this man had been laying in a state of paralysis for 38 years, and the only thing they care about is who told him to pick up his bed. They didn't ask him who told you to walk, who healed you. They only wanted to know who told him to break their little Sabbath rule. And this is one thing I've learned about religion over the years is that people can never see how far you've come from or what God has done in your life. They only see what you're still doing wrong. <laughs> they don't see how far, like how desperate and hopeless your life was just moments ago. All they care about is, look, you're still doing it wrong. You're still breaking a rule. Quit it. See, the the Pharisees, they were silent whenever the mat was carrying the man. But they complained loudly whenever the man was carrying the mat. Because if I'm this guy, I'm like, look, for 38 years I sat there in a desperate situation and I didn't have a single person to help me get into the water when the water was stirred. If you're so concerned about my spiritual well-being, then where were you for the last 38 years? (laughs) 
If you were so concerned about my walk with God and, and if I was holy and righteous, then why did you let me suffer for so long? But Jesus shows us that he does things the way that he wants to do them. The worldly system, it was set up just like our worldly system is set up today. Survival of the fittest, baby. The most capable, the smartest, the most able-bodied, the youngest, the fittest, the healthiest, the prettiest, good things in life happen for them. The most desperate, the most destitute, the most broken, the most impoverished have the least access to the good things of God according to the worldly system. And Jesus said, no, that's going to be reversed in my kingdom. Give me the most broken. Give me the most desperate. Give me the most helpless. Walking around the pool of Bethesda, he says, who is the sickest person here? Who is the most desperate person in the house? I want to work in your life. The worldly system says, look, you're not, the type of, you're, you're not the right type of person for a miracle. We're sorry. We're, we're, we'll help people that aren't as bad off as you. But you, you're, just, you're too much for us. And then the religious system says, well, you might be an all right person, but today was just the wrong day. <laughs> he should have healed you yesterday or tomorrow. How cruel is it after 38 years you could tell someone, well, just wait till tomorrow. Wait a minute, what's one more day? The world says you're not the right type of person for a miracle. Religion says it's the wrong time of your life for a miracle. But Jesus says you are the right person and today is the right day. <laughs> that is very simple. Even if your faith is struggling because the trial you've been going through has been prolonged, that even if you can't muster up enough faith, that God can respond to your desperation when you don't have the faith to get his attention. That God can respond based on his compassion for his children. I just want you to bow your heads for a moment.